the Marathon Medic podcast. My name's Amy and I'm a doctor and running coach with an interest in sports and exercise medicine. On this episode, I'm joined by Dr. John Sykes. John is a GP based in Bath and he's also trustee and director of the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine. John is passionate about physical activity for good health. So today we're discussing what lifestyle medicine is, the many health benefits of keeping active and the important role that healthcare professionals can play in promoting physical activity. Hi, John. Thank you so much uh, for joining me. I've been really looking forward to this conversation because it seems like we have very similar interests. Um, So for the benefit of everyone listening, would you mind just introducing yourself, who you are and your background? Yeah, no worries. Uh, And thanks for having me on, Amy. Um, So yeah, I'm a GP who's working in Bath at the moment. I um, have had a big interest in lifestyle medicine the last few years. Um, I initially was very keen on sports and exercise medicine and found that when I was going to conferences and talks all around those topics, that I found myself intrigued by the exercise arm of that and the benefit that we can get from being active, from encouraging others to be active, um, and all the reduction in risks for all manner of diseases Um, the benefit it gives to certain diseases, and then also in some situations even reverse certain illnesses. Um, And so I really found that I was inspired by by that, and I pursued that more, found that I was getting interested in uh, public health, which I know that you've got a role in at the moment this year. Um, And from there, kind of took off really, and, and I found myself intrigued in nutrition, sleep, and other aspects of that, and then kind of that formed that whole kind of lifestyle picture Um, And now I'm working in primary care and trying to kind of implement lifestyle changes for patients wherever possible, Um, trying to kind of get the practice to be more focused around lifestyle interventions. And um, yeah, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that as well. And I think sometimes people can have, um, they're not too familiar with what lifestyle medicine actually is because it's not a specialty by itself. You can't become purely a a lifestyle medicine doctor, sadly. I'm sure we both quite enjoy that. Um, yeah. So would you mind just explaining what exactly lifestyle medicine is? And you touched on a lot of things there, but the the elements of lifestyle that that might include. Yeah, of course. So put simply, it's the uh, it's enabling patients to adopt practical tools in management of wider determinants of the illness that they've got, which in some situations has got a lifestyle component. So we know for a number of conditions that we treat in general practice or in, in hospital medicine that the first stage of management is a lifestyle approach. Now, unfortunately, a lot of the time in, in healthcare, we are fighting fires and we are kind of got our back against the wall. And, and sometimes that kind of attention to detail for lifestyle interventions hasn't got the attention it deserves. Um, and I'd also say sometimes we as practitioners haven't really been given probably the right tools or the education to provide that assistance to patients to help them to make behavioral changes in the the manner of lifestyle changes that would have benefit. Um, I specifically have a passion for kind of very tailored and specific advice for individuals because I really feel that, you know, we talk about medicines and we talk about ones that we give for certain conditions and we're very precise. You know, we say the name of the drug, we say the dose of the drug, we say when to take it. Yeah, as when we want to try and get someone to be maybe more active or maybe to better their sleep, we'll say, oh, just just get some more sleep or try and do a bit more activity. It's not precise enough. It's not tailored to that individual. And then you asked about kind of the um, the different arms. So 
there are a few different arms. I mean, activity, nutrition, sleep, relaxation, which is kind of mindfulness type stuff as well, community, and then there's kind of toxins and things as well. So that kind of comes into kind of smoking and things like that. So those kind of six of the main arms of, of lifestyle medicine. And it's not to say that all conditions are caused by lifestyle. And it's not to say that if someone has a certain lifestyle that they are, it's their fault that they have that disease. But it's an appreciation that these lifestyle factors do very much contribute. And we as practitioners have the ability to inform patients of that, enable them to make some changes off the back of that. And in some situations, that can be life-changing. And for us as practitioners who went into this field of medicine to help people and to you know, make people feel better, you know, that, that's kind of why we went into it. We didn't go into medicine to give another pill, which don't get me wrong, has its role. But we have someone come back and say, you know what, doc, I've started going for a walk 10 minutes a day and I feel great. I feel so much better than I did before. You know, for me, that's that's the kind of reward that you, you hope to get from, you know, seeing patients and seeing them make changes. So, um, yeah, I think those are kind of the main aspects of, of lifestyle. And lifestyle medicine is using motivational interviewing techniques as well as other kind of coaching type techniques to allow patients to make changes off the back of the um, information, the educational information that you may have given during a, a consultation or during a contact of some sort. Um, and that alongside accountability and regular follow-up can be the thing which really does make the difference in, in managing that disease better. And you touched on it right right at the beginning there. You said that often as clinicians, we're almost underqualified in giving some of that advice because there does seem to be this massive hole in our curriculum where we're not really taught about lifestyle factors as much or preventative measures as, as much as we'd like. And especially when it comes to physical activity, I think there, there's studies which show like 80% of GPs don't actually know what the activity guidelines are. And it's just because it's often not included in part of our training. So I'm just... Uh, interested to know how your enthusiasm for this kind of area peaked and if there was something that happened during your training that sparked your interest and, and kind of got you on the path of learning more about all of these things. Yeah, so I mean, from the physical activity point of view, it was listening to a, a GP, um, uh, Dr. William Bird. He did a fantastic talk at a conference that I went to where he really went into the nitty gritty of activity and how it can actually really help on a biochemical level. The four kind of things he talked about were two anti-inflammatory mechanisms and two anti-aging mechanisms. Um, and the science behind that really kind of hit me, basically, and really made me think, gosh, there's, there's really strong evidence here. And off the back of that information, he then talked about the reduction in risk. And, you know, it's huge. We're talking about 50% reduction risk of diabetes, 40% reduction risk of cardiovascular disease. 50 to 80% reduction risk of osteoarthritis symptoms, 30% reduction risk of depression, anxiety, and multiple cancers as well, including reduction risk of breast cancer, colorectal cancer, and big, big numbers. You know, if we were able to package being active in a tablet or some kind of medicine that we could give, we'd give it to everyone. And there are very few contraindications to being active in some form. So I think when I heard those stats from Dr. William Bird and then heard them reiterated in other places, I really found that that was something which, which hit me. Um, and then during my training, I did a few projects where I actually did questionnaires and things 
asking practitioners who I was working with, you know, what the activity guidelines were. And I actually found it was less than the, the stats that you quoted there. In fact, one particular study I did found that there were no there was no one in the clinic I was working in that actually knew the guidelines. Um, and in fact, this was a multiple choice question of five answers and no one got it right out of the 15 practitioners not asked. Now, you could say, well, that's still on the practitioners. But for me, that's a reflection of the fact that we're not educating well enough in this area. And the information sometimes maybe isn't, you know, out there as widely as it should be. And for me, that's why I kind of thought, well, actually, maybe this is a position that I can maybe take and maybe I can push that education that can be part of the role that I play going forward, whether it be in general practice, have a bit of a public arm side of things and actually educate general practitioners around that kind of area of things and um, hopefully spread that information and inspire others to to spread that information more. Because there's, there's also big, big evidence showing that practitioners who are physically active themselves will be much more likely to tell others to be active. And as a result of that, patients are more likely to be active. Um, so I think, yeah, that was that was kind of the, the big moment with that talk with Dr. William Bird, and that kind of inspired things, and it became a bit of a process after that, really. It sounds like we're doing something really similar because I'm actually doing a physical activity project in my practice at the moment and sent out a survey asking about guidelines. I haven't looked at the results yet, but now I'm, <laughs> now I'm slightly worried about what it's going to show. <laughs> yeah, I'd be intrigued to know. I'd be intrigued to know. Yeah. Sure. I think as well with the guidelines, people often think about the activity and forget about the other components um to the importance of doing some strength work for adults and in older age thinking about flexibility and balance and all of those other things often get get lost and actually that's just as important as trying to keep active as well so yeah I'll, I'll let you know what those results show. yeah do and I do feel that the that that's often what's missed and in fact when I did that questionnaire and no one got it right it was the strength component that people didn't really appreciate um and I think ultimately the stats that we've got on physical activity are quite skewed generally. Um, I think sometimes the, you know, for maybe someone like yourself or me who, who's very keen on activity, who really looks into this, we, we know what a big issue it is. You know, 25% of the population do less than 30 minutes of activity a week. Um, and even the stats that talk about activity, when they've taken general populations and then given them accelerometers and seen what activity levels they do, I think one study showed that when they were asked, I think 40 to 50% said they hit the activity guidelines. And when they were given the accelerometer, I think it was 1% that actually fulfilled the guidelines. So yeah, it's a big issue. And there's definitely a lot less activity than, than we even can appreciate, I think. And I think especially given the pandemic and the working from home aspect of things, I think sedentary behavior has worsened. And then obviously you need to be doing even more activity to counteract that. I think so a study found that you had to do at least 30 minutes of physical activity each day. And that was moderate to vigorous to compensate for being sat down for eight to 10 hours a day working, which, you know, most people in the country are now doing because they're not even walking to get public transport or walking around the office. Exactly, exactly. And there've been other ones that have shown even higher than that. I think the one in 2018 that I last read was that you needed to do 60 to 75 minutes of activity before you can compensate for those eight hours yeah. of sitting so yeah it's it's a big amount and you're right I remember on the days when I have had to stay home because of um waiting COVID PCR tests and things like that I've done like 500 to a thousand steps um you just feel rubbish for it as well but yeah I think you're right I think that's definitely going to be a growing problem as well <laughs> 
I can actually see you moving around quite a lot at the moment. Do you have a standing desk? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, I, <laughs> I do my, my standing desk thing. I think um, it kind of, yeah, it's just something that I got used to doing, really. Um, I find it sometimes quite hard to work at the desk standing, but I do find I, I always feel better for it if I can do. Um, and obviously we know with, like, I always talk about the activity side of things and that being really, really important. But the sedentary side of things is actually a separate risk factor for yeah. disease. So we know that if someone was going to the gym for 30 minutes to an hour a day, you know, that's a good thing. They are in the active category, but they still could be classed as sedentary. And we do know that's a separate risk factor for multiple disease, heart disease, stroke, um, and a range of other kind of, you know, modifiable um, diseases, which actually would really benefit from just getting up a little bit more. So, yeah, when I do feel like I can, I'll try and use the standing desk when possible. Yeah, no, I think that's the really good idea. I, I wish it was more in GP practices. That's definitely the days where I'm sat down um, the most is in GP. Um, just going back to the lifestyle medicine side of things, you're a trustee and director of the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine. And I was just wondering if you could just share a little bit about what that is in case there's any medics listening who might be interested in uh, checking out what the uh, society offers. Yeah, of course. So I, yeah, I really encourage people to get involved with the, the BSLM. Um, I got involved about five years ago now, and I feel every time I go to talks or events inspired by or done by BSLM, I, I just think they're brilliant. Um, there was actually a webinar last night, which was talking about factors associated with poor health outcomes and how lifestyle medicine can actually intervene and assist um, by two excellent doctors. Um, but yeah, BSLM essentially is an independent, um, evidence-informed, non-for-profit charitable organization um, with medics, scientists, people who are well-informed around lifestyle medicine, who are essentially trying to spread the information, trying to spread the word around lifestyle medicine, hitting those kind of six key pillars of lifestyle medicine and to educate and inspire people to want to spread that message more. It's built on kind of um, different ways of practicing as well. So we'll talk a little bit more, I'm sure, about kind of group consultations and things um, and just different ways of working. You know, the, the, the pressure that's on the NHS at the moment is, is sadly relentless. And in order to alleviate that burden and to still be able to offer good patient care, we're going to have to start doing things differently. Um, and chronic disease is a massive, massive part of our work. And being able to potentially manage that in a different way might be one way forward. Group consultations is something that the BSLM certainly pushes. But really what BSLM is trying to do is to unite medics for this goal of allowing people to know more about lifestyle medicine so they feel they can assist and enable patients to make changes to educate kind of even political powers if possible to show the, the benefit that educating and pushing this kind of uh, message has um you know we, we've seen during covid the impact of people who've had those background conditions and things which are related with a poor lifestyle and we hope that that will be something which is pushed on a little bit from a political point of view but we'll see um, and then, yeah, just generally trying to spread that word and, and encourage medics to to engage in these lifestyle medicine practices within their surgeries. Because, you know, we are in a time when pressure's higher than ever, but actually these kind of messages still work and they're still important and they're still needed. So we still need to be kind of helping each other, enabling each other to, you know, push these messages and allow patients to make changes. I think healthcare has changed so much over the last Two, two years, I suppose, and 
I mean, so, some of that's obviously had some negative consequences, but I think there's been a, a lot of positive change. And also I think it's shown how quickly we can adapt and change to different circumstances. So I hope that I hope that people are a bit more open to these new changes and group consultations uh, definitely are something that maybe we might see a bit more in the future. I haven't been involved in any myself. It was actually, um, I was introduced to the concept by watching a programme with Dr Zoe Williams on, who's obviously huge into lifestyle medicine and physical activity as well. And she um, was doing a group consultation, I think, on diabetes. So would you mind just sharing what group consultations are and, and why they're so beneficial for some patients? Yeah, of course. So yeah, group consultations is an idea that's been around for a few years now. And in fact, certain members involved with the BSLM have been practicing this for kind of 10 years now. Some of the evidence that they've got from the back of this is incredible. But the concept is essentially, instead of having one-on-one consultations with patients where we've got 10, 15 minutes, which is just totally unmanageable, especially for certain chronic disease type conditions like your diabetes, like your heart disease, um, but even to things like menopause, even depression, anxiety, all kinds of conditions are conditions which are diseases which can go on for a fair period of time. And they're ones where actually patients do have a lot in common with maybe other patients around those conditions. So the concept is instead of the 10-minute consultations, we have 90-minute consultations with a group of maybe 10 people. The kind of group is run by a um, facilitator who has about 20 minutes at the start going around the group, getting any questions that they want to get out of the session, kind of getting a feel for how people are at that time. And then about 20, 25 minutes in, the clinical supervisor will come in, um, and that will be a GP or a specialist, and they will essentially do a consultation, a one-on-one consultation with individuals in that room and going around one by one. Um, And say for diabetes, that could look like talking to person A about their diabetes, how things are going at the moment, one thing they're finding hard have their results up on the board so everyone can see everybody's results and then essentially you go through it with that individual and then others in the group can kind of chip in at some points as well when it's appropriate it means that there can also be a nurse present as well to do foot checks which is something that's required for for diabetes as you know Um, and it basically means you can in 90 minutes do a review of someone's diabetes as well as do all the foot checks and things that we need to do alongside that for 10 patients in 90 minutes instead of, and it can be more than 10 patients as well in some of these situations, instead of what we're doing at the moment, which is individual appointments for sometimes 20 minutes to half an hour with diabetes patients in our nurse specialist clinics. And actually, sometimes we can get a lot more out of it, being in a group, having that accountability, having that ability to share stories, share hard times of having diabetes and, and what things they found did help or even someone being able to be encouraged by someone else in the group in terms of how they managed their diabetes or, or a story they had or a little quick tip they had for another one in the group. Um, and that accountability, that group kind of relatable type session does seem to really help patients to kind of share more, gain a lot more out of the session, feel they've been listened to a bit, a lot better It's a more efficient way of practicing as well in terms of time. Um, And I think it's something we're going to see more and more of. I moved away to Australia about three years ago and group consultations were only just kind of coming up then. And now there are group consultation surgeries all up and down the the country. 
Um, and I'm looking to hopefully start that in the surgery that I'm now working at in Bath. And yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what results that might bring. But I do think it's a, a concept which we're going to see more and more of going forward. I think a lot of patients have the same questions, don't they? And even if they haven't thought of that question, if someone asks it, they're probably going to think, oh, actually, I wish I'd asked that. I can kind of gain the information that that, that person's having and becomes very educational, um, which is such an important part of these chronic conditions is patient education um, and, and feeling listened to. So I think they're a really, really positive thing. So hopefully we see that change coming around quite soon. Yeah, definitely. And I think the thing we're seeing more and more of with patients with these chronic diseases is they are experts in themselves. And I think it would be very arrogant for us as clinicians to not appreciate that we can actually learn a lot from them. and They can impart a lot of knowledge to their peers around diabetes on those kind of topics. And I think that's something that we're getting better at appreciating is that actually patients who have got the disease for a certain number of years, um, or even if they've just had it for a short period, they, they know their condition pretty well. And actually, they can really help others as well. Um, so it's just another arm of why those kind of groups can be really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Especially as, as generalists, we, we can't obviously be expected to know um, everything about every condition. So yeah, patients often do have much more knowledge. One thing I wanted to touch on there is obviously the benefit of group consultations is the time element. And obviously we know in general practice, time is a, a huge issue. So just going back to the, the physical activity promotion in general practice, mm. when you have that 10 minute consultation time and you obviously especially you you're very passionate about lifestyle factors how on earth are you managing to incorporate some physical activity um, advice and interventions within those small appointment times and do you have any nuggets or tips that you can share with us yeah so I I um I actually did a conference um I was involved in a conference before I went to Australia about three years ago and I, I did a skit actually with Dr Zoe Williams who you just talked about and um, we played a role play where um, she was the doctor and I was the patient. And Zoe was basically just doing little things to kind of allow that conversation to come into the agenda for that consultation. Um, and so just a couple of things that we kind of trialed out were making sure that the doctor went actually got the patient from the waiting room instead of using the call-in system. Um very easy conversation to start up. I remember doing that all the time. And whenever I do, patients would say, oh, like, you know, is the system broken? Like, no, no, no. I just, you know, want to make sure that I'm getting my steps in for the day because I'm very much sat at my desk for the rest of the day otherwise. And the number of times even just that little kind of snippet of information would open up a whole conversation around that, that person wanting to become more active, them actually becoming more active recently and wanting to tell me about it or them appreciating the importance of that. I, I can honestly say every single time we, I went to get someone, a conversation like that had the potential to, to come out. Um, and there are other little things you can do as well. So we talked about having our cycling helmet actually in the consultation room somewhere in the room, or having our running trainers by the side as long as they don't smell too bad. But just other little bits which could hint at the fact that there's you know, someone who's appreciating the importance of activity, obviously posters up on the wall, that kind of stuff. But I think also in consultations. So I think one thing that's really helpful to empower patients, and that's something that I'm quite passionate about, is when I do see someone with a behavior-related illness, I will often try and explain the causes behind a condition. So great examples, blood pressure. Whenever I see someone with slightly high blood pressure, 
the person often wants to know the cause. So you'll say, okay, well, and I won't say it's because you're inactive. I'll say, okay, so, well, when we've got high blood pressure, there are a few things that could contribute to this. So it could be that we're drinking a little bit too much at the moment. It could be that maybe we've, we've gained a bit of weight in this time. It could be some family history-related things. Uh, and sometimes it's due to being active as well. There are obviously other causes and things, and depending on what you're talking about, you could lift, make that list longer or shorter. But the number of times I use those lists after kind of talking about even a blood test or a chronic condition that someone's struggling with, list those causes, and often patients will highlight themselves that they're not as active as they like to be. And then that's a really easy conversation. Say, okay, well, do you think you could become more active? What activity would you like to do? How much do you think you can do? Shall we set some goals for next time I see you? Um, and this is where motivational interviewing kind of comes into it. I talked about that earlier in terms of one of the things that the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine really pushes, the ability to really rank where someone's at in terms of their concept of change. Are they someone who's in the pre-contemplative stage? They're not really thinking about the change, but in an ideal world, they'd like to, but they're not really thinking about it. Or are they contemplating a change? Are they thinking they would like to do something different? Are they thinking they could make a change at this time? Or are they actually further down the line than that? Are they actually preparing to make a change? Have they already made some changes? What have they done? What have they found works well? What barriers have they had? Um, and then almost ranking you know, their motivation and their concept of their ability to change from one to 10, which is that classic motivational interviewing tool to see where someone's at. So you know, Mrs. Jones, you're, you're thinking about becoming more active. How likely is it do you think that you should be able to become more active? Oh, I think I'm a, I think I'm a six out of ten. Okay, so why is it a six and not a one? Well, it's a six because I just, I don't really, I feel like I want to make a change, and I feel it'd be really important to make a change. Okay, so why is it a six and not a ten? Well, I think I'm quite busy this week. I've got a lot on. Work's quite hard at the moment. It's quite hard to know where this will fit in. So already you've got loads of information for why someone does see it as important, but they also can see some barriers and then you can start working on those things. Now, as I said, with the, you know, the small amount of time in general practice and I think you'll have to choose, and I've done this badly many times and, and often ended up overrunning because of this. I think working out where someone's at in terms of their stage of change is really important. So if in their pre-completive stage, I think you just need to say something quite basic and say something which might inspire some thought process around some change. So, well, we know that activity can be really helpful for blood pressure. If you're not up to, if you're not wanting to make some change at this time, or if it's not the right time to make some change, that's totally fine. If you ever did want to come back to me and talk to me about it, I'd be more than happy to talk to you about it. And you kind of leave it there. However, if someone says, you know what, actually, last year I went, I was going on runs, I was trying to do all this stuff, um, and I just found it too hard, there was this barrier, there was this barrier, then I often would obviously dig a lot deeper. And sometimes people aren't sure where the problem is. They feel that they're active, they think that they're doing things that are active, but they're not quite getting to where they'd like to. Uh, and one, again, very precise tool that I tend to use is using our phones. Now, we know our phones monitor everything, and it can be quite bad, but it's also great for helping patients understand their behaviors a bit more. So I'll commonly ask, obviously, with the patient's permission, if I can look at their phone. And we all know on the, on the Apple phone, but also on Android and all the other phones that are available, um, you can check how many steps someone does a day. And often that's a real insight to patients that actually they're nowhere near as active as they thought. 
I know personally for me, that was quite big for me when I was working on wards in hospitals. I had in my head that I was doing loads of activity in hospital and I was doing a fair bit, but it still wasn't hitting that 10,000, which just makes you realize, you know, it's not the easiest thing to hit that 10,000. And sometimes we do need to make a concerted effort. Again, 10,000 not being the optimal thing to, to aim for, but just talking again about what should be relatively around what we should be aiming for. 10,000 is not a bad thing to look at. And ultimately, you know, I think a lot of the time patients feel they might be hitting something similar to that and often they're not even close. So yeah, so that's quite a whirlwind of a few different things that you can try um, and that I try and try. But I, I'm not going to put myself out there and say that I'm perfect at this. I'll get this wrong sometimes. I think the most important thing is if you keep going with it, there'll be times when it will make an impact and you, you'll be amazed at the impact it's had. There'll be other times when you think you've had a really good conversation with someone, they'll come back two weeks later and they've done nothing. But we do know that our consultations work. There's a group that did some looking into this and found that if we were to advise someone to stop smoking and we had you know, 150 patients that we were going to tell to stop smoking, on average, one is going to stop smoking. Whereas if we were going to get a group of just 12 people to tell them to become active, one of those is going to become active. So, you know, in general practice, we're seeing 30 to 40 patients a day. If we tell everyone in those patients to become active, then we're going to get about really becoming active. That's amazing. I think we can be encouraged by the fact that our words do do matter in terms of physical activity. And I think it's just a case of trying when we can to have those conversations, trying to get work it in, working out what stage of change that person's at, admitting it's not going to work every time. And sometimes it won't have any impact at all. But the few times that it does, it can make a huge impact. So it's just a case of persevering. I think it's about having a consistent message as well, isn't it? So you know, maybe in your consultation, you won't quite get through to somebody, but actually if they then come and see the nurse a few weeks later for their foot check and they mention physical activity as well, hopefully that kind of just starts to build the picture that actually this really is important and everyone that's kind of looking after me and wants the best for my health is mentioning physical activity or may- maybe this is something that I do want to consider a bit more. So I think persevering, um, we might not see the direct benefits, but hopefully down the line, if, if we keep sending the same messages and everyone's working towards the same goal hopefully that then then does create a, a result that we want yeah 100 percent. and i think the only thing i'd underline on top of that is is if we're doing it and we all need to do this you know every single member of the team in a non-judgmental listening patient-centered way um and in a way that people feel like they're actually been understood because i think if we don't do that i think ultimately we're just telling people and just telling them what to do which is not the way to practice medicine you know those days are long and gone um it's about shared decision making it's about making sure the patient feels like they got their agenda at the top of the list and it's a patient-centered approach so yeah i totally echo all the things you've just said um and it's a case of reiterating that message in a proper way for the patient yeah and an appropriate time because obviously some some consultations it's just not appropriate um yeah. so, so yeah. that's important too exactly. I, I also just wanted to get your opinion on on the wording that we use because I yeah. think I'm guilty of using the word exercise maybe a bit too much and that can have connotations of going to a triathlon or having to do some structured um event where you put your running shoes on and go for a run whereas I guess movement or activity has 
it's more open to interpretation and hopefully it would encourage people just to do any form of extra movement. So I was just wondering um, what words you prefer to use and, and if you think that makes a big difference. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think it's one of the things that really hit me when I first got into this, that I just started to stop using or trying to, because it always slips in, but trying to not use that word exercise. Because I think the common thought process now around exercises, sweating loads, being in a gym, in an uncomfortable environment, feeling uncomfortable, feeling out of breath, feeling in pain, um, suffering, you know, all the terminology around going to the gym is so like that, isn't it? Let's go to war. Let's, let's hit it hard, you know, burn it to earn it. And it's all this kind of like really hard terminology around being active. And it's certainly enough to put people off. Um, so yeah, I mean, similar to what you've just said there, Amy, I mean, for me, it's about using the word activity, um, because ultimately activity can be a range of different things. And I think the biggest form of activity that I wish we were getting everyone to do more of, and that's including the, you know, the gym buff who's who's going to the gym every day, including the triathlete who's who's doing lots of cycling and running, is doing a bit more walking. And um, there are very few contraindications to walking, and the benefit that we can get is huge. You know, fifty years ago we didn't need to factor exercise into our everyday because people were walking so much that it just wasn't needed. Um, and you know, there are benefits from higher intensity exercise. And ultimately, the ideal situation is we have someone who isn't doing much activity at all. We get them into something which they enjoy. If it's walking, if it's gardening, if it's um, more relaxed cycling or something that's kind of very manageable for them, I'd, I'd still see the benefit from just getting someone from doing nothing to doing something. We know that there's a clear kind of curve showing the benefits of activity. And if we get someone from who's doing no activity at all or someone who's classed as sedentary, which is that, you know, as I said at the start, 25% of the population, getting them to just do something which could be walking, then, you know, they've massively reduced their risk of so many health conditions. Um, and I think we talked before about barriers, and I do think terminology is really important. I think that's even important when we talk about lifestyle medicine, to be honest. I think lifestyle medicine sometimes can be seen as, you know, <laughs> kind of acai bowls and running along the beach with incredible sunsets and these incredible pictures of food and all this kind of stuff, which, yeah, that, you know, that's cool. And it, it makes it look glamorous and, and that's great. And I, you know, we want a message to be promoted. I can see why we go for that glam side of things, but lifestyle medicine for me is so much more nitty gritty than that. For me, it's, it's about helping people to make behavior change in situations that are not quite as pretty as that you know we're talking about helping people to stop smoking we're talking about kind of helping people who are very depressed to maybe just do a little bit more activity such as some walking and then be able to get off their antidepressant you know at the end of the day coming off a medication doesn't sound sexy but you know it should be because it's, it's great and it shows that someone's actually feeling better as a result and actually you know there is a role for medication and that can be with all these conditions that we talk about but ultimately there, there's there's real benefit in kind of you know allowing people to to make those changes um but yeah terminology is really key and i think that's something that we're still working on for a number of things but certainly from a, a physical activity point of view I, I like using the word activity um i don't tend to use too much more than that to be honest it's normally just activity do you have any others that you tend to use apart from that 
I guess movement is the only other yeah, one just yeah, because right. again I guess activity can sometimes seem prescribed in some way even yeah. even though it really doesn't need to be so I think I think it really depends I guess as well it's quite individual isn't it, it depends where that person is coming from and um, trying to get them to identify what they want to do and if it happens to be some form of very structured exercise and that's great um, we can use the word exercise but I guess reflecting on what words they're using and trying to just use those as well but yeah it's, it's, it's difficult because I think in my own life I would use the word exercise so then when you go to work you naturally slip in the terms that that you use um, but you'll be pleased to know I, I don't tell everyone to go and run marathons or anything <laughs> I try I try and <laughs> I try and encourage the walking as well that's good stuff um when we were speaking about group consultations you uh you mentioned that you'd spent some time in australia and there's lots of pictures of you running on nice beaches and definitely (laughs) practicing practicing your um, activity levels so i was just wondering in terms of medicine in australia and medicine in the uk obviously group consultations are something that's very popular over there but what else did you learn or find particularly valuable in australia that you would hope to see in the uk that you'd want to bring over yeah, I mean, there were lots of things, to be honest. Um, the healthcare system in Australia is very different to here. Um, there's a lot more availability of certain services, and certainly there's not the pressure that there is here. Don't get me wrong, there's, especially when COVID's been um, going on, especially in the last kind of few months when Australia's had a bit of a peak of, of cases and, and lockdowns and things, I think they have been very busy. Um, but I don't think it's been quite the, uh, the pressure levels that we've seen in, here in the UK, especially given the current um, waiting times and issues with with, with medicine here in, in the NHS. Um, I think the big things were accessibility to other services. I found as a, as a GP um, and time in appointments. So if I wanted to see someone for a longer appointment, whether it be to talk about whatever issue it was, whether it be a lifestyle related condition, mental health condition, which are obviously quite intertwined sometimes as well, I, I had the time to do that, and I could adjust my schedule quite comfortably to do that which was massive as a practitioner. Um, so that was that was one really big thing. Um, and then the second thing was collaboratively being able to work with so many other fantastic healthcare professionals. Um, we've got dietitians, nutritionists, and physios on the NHS, but unfortunately there's not as many as we probably require to, to offer some of the care that certainly I'd like to in a collaborative approach. Um, but in Australia, you actually have the ability to work with these individuals so for instance if I saw someone who had diabetes was really struggling to control their their um, HbA1c which is you know the blood test for um, diabetes I could actually with them spend a long time formulating a plan how we could increase their activity change their nutrition get other people involved and then I could actually refer this person on to a nutritionist to an exercise physiologist which is a specialty we don't have as much here basically is an exercise specialist who helps people with chronic disease as well as a physio if they will have any other ailments at that time and those three people alongside with me would work collaboratively with this patient for the next six months or so to help them achieve some goals and it was really good fun being able to do that and that kind of team approach because you know I very much appreciate there are elements of the lifestyle messages and the lifestyle impact that I can have that are limited and ultimately getting other people involved who are better at nutrition than me, for instance, better at advising on exercise than me, better advising on musculoskeletal injuries could be really key to that person making changes. 
and the system allowed them to get those appointments at a reduced rate from what it would normally be. It was normally about half price, which was obviously making it a lot more affordable. So yeah, those would be the, the two main things. And we do have some things in place in the NHS which allow us to do some of those things. So for instance, now with the way that consultations work, because we are doing more telephone triage, even though we are still seeing people face to face on a regular basis, because when we have our own schedules, we can actually book in face to faces when we want to. And it means that we can actually set the time almost that we want to. So in a way, you know, the way that COVID has worked out, we do have a bit more flexibility in terms of doing that. But I still wouldn't say that we have enough time for individuals, especially if we're looking back at chronic disease management. I think we need more time um, and certainly access to specialists. Um, and one specialist that I didn't mention there was clinical psychologists. So in Australia, one of the common things that would happen is someone would come to me and ask for something called a mental health care plan. And that would allow me to have a long chat with them about what's going on with them from a mental health perspective and then refer them on to a, a clinical psychologist um, and they could see them, you know, even the next day, sometimes it was amazing. And that in terms of managing, you know, something as hard to treat as mental health, I think was, was incredible. Um, so yeah, access to services and kind of increased time with the patient. Really. That all sounds wonderful. I'm wondering <laughs> <laughs> if, I, if I should jump on a plane. <laughs> yeah, I don't, to, I don't want to get everyone out there. But, um, yeah. but yeah, it was. it's a very different system out there. I very much encourage people to go out there for a period and, and get, you know, go into a different system because, I, I, you know, it was the best two years ever, really. It was amazing. But obviously being in Australia is incredible, incredible country, incredible lifestyle, incredible weather. We were very lucky we met some amazing people out there as well. But um, yeah, practicing medicine in a different way definitely gives you an appreciation for the NHS as well because there are better bits in the NHS as well. And it also makes you realize things that you can do differently here, which is, you know, something that inspires you to keep going. So, yeah, would would very much encourage those thinking about it to uh, consider a bit of a trip away. It doesn't have to be Australia. Obviously, there are other places you can go. Yeah, I think uh, experience in any healthcare system can be really useful when you when you come back and have ideas that hopefully you can implement to some extent obviously we can't override the NHS system but as you said there's plenty of benefits it has to offer so if we can then do our own thing and and make some more changes it's really really beneficial for our patients hopefully. That's it are you tempted at all to go out there? Um, Yeah I'm not not sure Australia maybe Canada Um, I I spent some time there in my childhood so it's always been kind of on my list to return Um, but we'll see I think you know one step at a time <laughs> get, get, get through all of my training first and it's difficult isn't it with with family and I think we're pretty lucky to live in the UK I think especially the last two years having not been able to travel as much I've appreciated where we live more than ever I, I feel like we could keep talking about this forever there's so there's so much knowledge that you have and um common interests but is there anything else you'd like to add or, or share to everyone listening just essentially you know, if you are interested in the kind of lifestyle stuff and the physical activity stuff, I think, especially if you're a healthcare provider and you're feeling like the system is too hard at the moment to get that kind of stuff into your everyday consults, too hard to fit in, I think I just encourage you to just keep going. Uh, and I know that sounds like really basic, but I think actually, you know, we are in a time when it is easy to push that stuff to the side, but that's the kind of stuff that gives us the energy to keep going. That's the kind of stuff where we see and here are these really inspiring stories of patients changing and feeling better for it. So I just encourage people to you know, get stuck in more, to get in contact with the BSLM because you know, there's some really good resources there. 
um, good webinars, which, as I said, the one last night was very inspiring for myself. Um, and I think just to, to get in contact, do get in contact with me if you've got any questions about that kind of stuff. I'm more than happy to help if I can. Um, and then, yeah, just if you do find that that lifestyle thing is something you want to pursue more, there are things you can do with the BSLM to push that message further. We're always looking for keen, enthusiastic people to, to assist with that. Um, and also just to get involved in community projects. Um, do something locally in your surgery. Do something locally where you're working. And just you'll, you'll be inspired by it, what I'm trying to say. I think I've been lucky enough to just do a few mini projects. And every single time I've come out of it thinking, gosh, that was, that was worth doing. That's allowed me to enjoy my job more. And actually, it's inspired me on to, to do other things. So, yeah. And for anyone in um, GP practice at the moment, there's the RCGP Active Practice Charter, mm. which is what I'm working on at the moment to try and um, get your practice certified as an active practice. So that's always quite a good point to, to start with and try and promote activity in your practice. 100%. Um, you've just made a recent return as well to uh, social media and you share lots of information similar to what we've discussed today. So would you mind just uh, letting everyone know what your Instagram handle is so they can go and follow you? Yeah, so I'm at Health and Fitness Doctor, um, and then I'm also on kind of um, just the web on www.johnsykes.com. Um, so yeah, if you want to message me on there, that'd be great. Great. Thank you so much for your time. Great. Thanks, Amy. A huge thanks to John for joining me on today's episode. As he said, you can find him on Instagram by searching Health and Fitness Doctor, or you can visit his website, drjohnsykes.com. For more podcast episodes, you can head to marathonmedic.com or find me on Instagram at marathonmedic to keep up to date with the latest episodes. Thanks so much for listening. 